Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Awesome. Uh, my name is Carl and I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach and it is lovely, lovely, lovely to be with you tonight. Uh, I'd like to start tonight by telling you about the first time that uh, I went to Nepal. Uh, about 10 years ago, <clears throat> I was um, at this party and I was speaking to this young woman who was the young Australian of the year and she was doing this incredible work in Nepal and it just set my heart aflame, right? Um, it set my heart so much aflame that as she was talking, I just went off into dreamland and I started thinking about all the cool things that I could do in Nepal, helping young people. I was so excited. And so I was really, really excited that about six years after that, that I got an opportunity to go to Nepal. And so my wife and I, um, we got, I met my wife and we got married and then we decided we were going to do the Europe thing. And um, we headed off into Europe, and there's this, this really th- cool thing that happens with me and my wife is that we just don't seem to fight while, while we're on holidays. It's this amazing miracle of God, right? That we just don't fight. We bicker around here, but we go away, and it's perfect. And part of that is, is that I've just decided to be a passenger on her holiday, right? The reason why that works is because I have no sense of direction. And so my wife has a beautiful sense of direction. My wife knows where to go in the quickest way possible, and I still need to use like the old school Google Maps as I'm getting around Adelaide. And so as we're going through Europe, I just let her plan the trip until we came to this point where we were on our trip and we were going to um, Pompeii, and I saw that I could hit Nepal on the way. And then so I said to my wife, um, it was my opportunity to stand up and to take a lead. And so um, she was looking at, I told my wife we're going to go to Nepal. She looked at a map, pretty confused, but I'd found this um, European woman named Mia who could, said she could direct us. And so my wife said, don't go with her. And I went with her and then later on she asked for money because that's what she was after the whole time. And she told me how to get a ticket to Nepal. And so I um, told my wife, don't look at the map. I didn't need to do any research, right? Because I'd met this woman named Mia and we were off. And so we, um, my wife and I jump in this train on the way to Pompeii and um, uh, we get off at Nepal and we're walking around and it just feels wrong, right? We're walking around and it just doesn't feel like the postcards that we had seen. It didn't seem like this beautiful jungle or this mix of spirituality that I was expecting to see. And we're walking through and it feels like that scene in a Western movie when you walk into a saloon and you walk in and everyone just goes quiet and starts staring at you. That's what was happening in Nepal. And everyone was just like retreating back into their homes as we walked through these really shady streets. And we're walking and I'm just finding nothing of what it was like when I pictured going to Nepal. And I see this um, sign that tells us the directions and tells us where we are. And I found out something uh, quite profound in that moment that um, was news to me. And maybe it can help someone out here tonight. You ready for it? Nepal... And Naples are two different places. Did anyone know that? Did anyone not know that? Did I help out anyone tonight? Amen. Helped out someone. Right, so, and not only are Nepal and Naples two different places, they're in two different countries, right? Not only are they in two different countries, they're on two different continents, right? They are very, very, very far away from each other. Now, I realise this in the moment, And um, for the next half an hour, I'm trying to find a way to tell my wife that that I've led her into the wrong country while keeping my pride. And after a half an hour of going deeper and deeper inside to 
of Naples, I figure out that I need to um, let her know where we are. So why do I tell that story? I tell that story because so often, uh, unfortunate circumstances are not the same as unforeseen circumstances, right? Unfortunate circumstances are not always the same as unforeseen circumstances. That often the unfortunate circumstances that we end up in are the result of a series of decisions and choices and beliefs that we made long ago that have caught up with us. When I was 12 years old, I didn't break my arm through an unforeseen uh, circumstance. I broke my arm because my mum said, stop leaning back on your chair at the dinner table, and I ignored her advice. And I broke my arm. I am... Um, when I was about in my mid-twenties, I didn't receive uh, a voided mobile phone account because it was um, an unforeseen circumstance. It happened because I was driving my car and I was talking on my phone and I got pinged by the cops for $400 and couldn't afford to pay my phone bill, right? Unfortunate but not unforeseen. It was unfortunate when I couldn't put brand new tyres on my car but it wasn't unforeseen because I used the money that I was going to use to buy those tyres to buy symbols for my drum kit instead, right? Unfortunate does not always mean unforeseen. It is the same also often in matters of faith, that we end up in a position in our walk with God where we feel like our walk with God is fractured and it is crumbling and it is broken and it feels shipwrecked. And it is often because of a series of choices and beliefs that have led us to the point that we're at now. It's true that many troubling situations in life could have been avoided had we made better choices earlier on. And this, the same is true of our faith, that a thriving faith does not happen by accident. A thriving faith does not happen by accident, but it is chosen and it is pursued. And for some people, that doesn't feel like very good news, right? As you come into this place, maybe you feel like your faith does feel a little crumbled. Or you've had seasons of your life where you feel like you, your faith has felt weak and your faith hasn't felt like it was on fire. Well, the good news is that the Bible is not silent on how to experience a thriving faith. And we're going to meet a character in the Bible tonight, a man named Simon the Magician, and he is used by the writer Luke as an illustration of a fractured, broken faith. He is not the exceptional case. He's what can be the norm for many of us. And Luke reveals to us three warnings in the book of Acts that we need to heed if our heart's desire is to experience a thriving walk with God. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. If you did not bring a Bible here tonight, in the pew in, the pew in front of you, you should see a Bible there. You can just pull that out. If you've got a phone with a Bible on it, just pull it out to Acts 8. Uh, in the pew Bible, we're on page 916. Uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles is an incredible book. If you're new to church, it's a story of the early church, the church that first exploded. Uh, but it's not a um, Wikipedia page about uh, the early church. It reads much more like a narrative arguing the case of the unstoppable church. That when God set in motion the church, there was nothing that was going to hold it back. 
But chapter 8 is powerful because it introduces us to two responses to the gospel. The gospel is spreading like never before, but that doesn't mean that everyone is responding to the gospel in the same way. Some people's faith matures, some people's faith does not mature, and it is not by accident. So let's meet Simon the magician. But to understand Simon's story, we actually need to start at the end to see how he walked himself into the position that he got himself into. This story is a story of tragedy. There is no triumph in the story of Simon. So let's meet Simon in verse 22. This is the um, words of Peter towards Simon. Peter says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. This is powerful, verse 23. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Powerful words, right? You are in the gall of bitterness. You might say drowning in jealousy and bitterness. In the bond of iniquity. You might say handcuffed to sin. Simon is in an awful, awful, unfortunate circumstance, but not unforeseen. I like the way that the message translation has this poetic, account, uh, uh, poetic take on verse 22. For those of you that don't know, the message translation is not so much a translation as it is a poetic kind of reimagining of the Bible. And it's written by a single author, and he, and he describes this verse to say, I can see, this is the words of Peter and the way that he's reimagined it, I can see that this is an old habit of yours, he writes. That the situation that Simon has got himself into was not just by fluke, but it was through a habit, a series of choices, a series of beliefs that he didn't deal with that ended up in this situation where he was described as being in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, a place that none of us would long to be in. But this passage, the scariest part of all, is that this passage is just an illustration of what is possible for all of us. So what I'd like to do tonight is to speak to you about three warning signs that we see from the passage for those of us seeking to pursue a thriving walk with God. Three warnings, okay? You might like to write these down. Warning number one, pride comes before the fall. Warning number one, pride comes before the fall. Look down at the start of our story, back to the start in verse 9. Luke writes, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. As Simon is uh, not all that different from the rich young ruler. Uh, the rich young ruler had power, he had money. That's the, the situation that we find Simon in. And in Simon's case, perhaps different from the rich young ruler, the people loved Simon. How do we know? Because Simon told us. Look down at the end of verse 9. It says, saying that he was somebody great. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had, made, he had amazed them with his magic. Now, magic to the, Samar to the Samaritan people was more than just card tricks, right? It was card tricks plus engaging in the occult practice demonic rituals, right? So some of the magic that he was doing, he would purchase magic tricks, sleight of hand, and part of what he was doing was communicating with demonic forces. 
And in the Samaritan culture, to say that you practice magic wasn't just to say that you could communicate to gods, it was to say that you were a god. And Simon loved that. Simon loved being known as someone that was great. What's the key idea that Luke's communicating to us? He's saying that Simon was used to being worshipped and supernatural power was the means of keeping himself in business. Look what happens next. Look down in verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Even Simon himself, and after being baptised, he can... Even Simon himself, and after being baptised, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great, great miracles performed, he was amazed. So clearly, it says clearly, Simon believed, was baptised, and it even says that he continued with Philip. What a turnaround. But the story doesn't end on a high note. It ends in tragedy. Some people have um, used this passage to argue that this is an example of the first false convert, right? And I don't think that you need to push it that far to make the case that Luke is trying to make. He's saying to us that we can choose a series of attitude, attitudes, a series of behaviours, a series of choices and end up in our place where our faith is almost crippled. Luke's point is simple. Pride, being a lover of self, has the power to kill a thriving walk with God. It does. The power to kill a thriving walk with God. Pride comes before a fall. Why is pride such a problem? Well, James says it in this way. God opposes the proud. That should make us tremble, right? The creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, the creator of the world, the creator of the roaring seas, of cyclones and hurricanes, of the blazing sun, stands in opposition to those who would say that this world is not about you, it's actually all about me. God stands opposed to that kind of behaviour. I remember the saddest day, uh, saddest birthday that I ever had. Do you remember when you were young enough to get really disappointed at pre uh, presents that your parents gave you and you would let them know about it? Got to be really young, right? It stretched on for me for a while, a while longer. Um, but I had figured out the way to manipulate my parents to get the perfect present. What I would do, young kids take note, I would find the thing that I wanted in a magazine somewhere and I would cut it out. And um, as I went to bed at night, I would lay it on my chest as if I'd fallen asleep dreaming about the present that I was going to get. Nine times out of ten, it worked beautifully, right? Except on this occasion. I really wanted a skateboard. I um, told my mum that I wanted a skateboard. I held pictures of skateboards on my chest, right? I've never owned a skateboard. Instead, my mum gives, gives, gives me this envelope, and inside this envelope were discounted movie tickets. I was as disappointed as you are right now. <laughs> and I said to my mum, I said to my mum, Mum, I'm 10 years old, I don't pay for my movies, why do I need them discounted? And my mum said to me in wisdom, Carl, this world does not revolve around you. Has anyone ever said that to you before? This world does not revolve around you. 
Maybe a friend or a family member has said to you, this world does not revolve around you. Well, do you know what the truth is? We're a lot better off that it doesn't, right? That the world doesn't revolve around my renown, my glory, my fleshly desires. Revolve around my pride. And what Luke would say to us as he records this story is that pride is not the destination, right? When you become prideful, you don't just end up at the destination of pride. Pride is the means of arriving at the destination that Luke uses here to descri- and describes as the gall of bitterness. That pride actually transports you to a place where you are described as being in the gall of bitterness, full of bitterness. You reek of bitterness. Bitterness takes over every part of your life. I would be confident to say that you've never met any person that is bitter in one part of their life and full of peace and love and joy and patience in every other. That bitterness actually takes a control of our life. Bitterness is all-consuming. Bitterness is all-consuming. A couple of years ago, we had Lauren and Jason over our our house, mine and Beck's house, for a MasterChef challenge. And um, what we did is that uh, the guys created a a box of food for um, the girls, and it was guys versus girls, and they would open up their box, and there was a food in there, and there was also $10, and so we could go to the shops and buy what we needed and then come back and make a couple of courses. And um, we came back, and very, very quickly, we could see that the girls were going to win, right? Very, very, surprise, surprise, right? Um, they were going to win, and they were beating us by quite a long margin. First course comes out, and we had just streaks and streaks behind. The second course comes around, and we've got a secret weapon, right? A weapon that they don't know about. And so they make their dish, and we're cocky at this point. There's a little strut going on because we've got this secret weapon. We are terrible cooks, by the way. We're strutting around with this secret weapon as we go to cook salmon up and these prawn things. and um, We've got this secret weapon of grapefruit, right? Any chefs in the room here today that would think it would be a wise idea to put grapefruit on seafood? Well, we thought it was an excellent idea to put grapefruit on seafood. And so what we do is we shave up the grind of that grapefruit all over our fish And then we think, to make it extra special, we cut that grapefruit in half and then we squeeze it on top of our seafood. Do you know how bitter the taste of grapefruit is? It didn't just affect one part of the meal. There was no edible part of that meal. That's what pride does. When we make the world all about us, it leads us to this place of bitterness affecting every single part of our life. And Luke makes this point that Simon has been included in the mission of God, that the gospel is spreading everywhere. And then the gospel even spreads to Simon. And Simon carries the pride of his past into his life, makes this world all about him, and he doesn't have the gospel to offer people. He doesn't have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and an attitude of self-control. He has bitterness to offer people because he chose to make the world all about him. Just like so often we choose to make the world all about us. Here's the good news. What does the book of Acts teach us? It teaches us that God 
both wants to be with us and God wants to use us. That he wants you to experience a thriving faith. That you can walk and lean into the person of God and the promises of God. That God, when you became a Christian, God gave you spiritual gifts so that you could be used in the kingdom of God. That God wants to see you flourish in the gifts that he has given you. God wants to be with you and God wants to use you. But when your hearts are full of pride, the Bible says that God wants to oppose you. So what's the antidote to pride? How do we kill pride? James 4 verse 2 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble. Here's our first application. Every day, every day, we need to heed the warning against pride and choose a lifestyle of humility. Choose a lifestyle of humility. What does that mean? I do love this uh, quote by C.S. Lewis who says that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Now, what does that actually mean, right? Here's the problem when we define humility as thinking less of ourselves. Problem number one is that you deny the truth of the Imago day that we are created in the image of God. When we deny the significance of us as created beings in the image of God, we deny the greatness of who God is. One of the um, clearest apologetic arguments, defences of the faith, is the watchmaker argument. I don't know if you've heard it, right? But it's the argument that if you get a look at an old school watch and you open up that watch and you see the beauty of its creation, its grand design, the fact that it is created, it points to a beautiful and grand designer, right? But when we say that we're just average creatures with nothing to offer and we're this, we're this average creation, what we tell the world is that we have an average God. It even makes us feel uncomfortable right now, doesn't it? To say that we were created in the image of God. But that's the truth of the Bible. Does the Bible not say that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? It says, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That we do the gospel no benefits when we mock who we've been created in the image of. The problem with when we define humility as thinking less of ourselves, reason number two is that you deny the reality of the significance of the gifts God has given to believers and it robs God of worship. When you celebrate the gift, you are celebrating the giver, right? When I get a gift for my birthday and I say, how incredible is this gift? Look how incredible this gift is. It doesn't say anything about me. It says something quite profound about the one who gave it to me, the generosity. We in our staff, um, every year we have this uh, staff party where the rule is uh, $10 only, right? And every year, Pastor Timon breaks it. He buys this $35 present that we're all so jealous of and everyone just fights over it the whole time, Right? And everyone says to him, oh, you're so generous for putting $35 in, but I know the scam. It's all about the, um, him getting the praise for being the generous one. But it is true, right, that the gift reflects the posture of the giver. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above 
coming down from the Father of lights. True humility is thinking of yourself less. Here's what you can do tomorrow morning when you wake up. Here's your application. You can wake up tomorrow morning, get on your knees and say, Lord, not my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. Not the glory of my name, but the glory of your name. And so today, whether I do ministry and mission in front of thousands or nobody would know my name, may I rejoice that you call me your child. That's humility. It's not demeaning yourself. It's just being in awe that God would choose to use someone like us. That's what Luke reveals to us as a barrier to a thriving walk with God and the thriving mission of God. Pride. And godly humility has a power to unlock both. A great experience of God's personhood and a great experience of God's purposes through our life. A first warning. Pride comes before the fall and our antidote is godly humility. Our second warning. Warning number two. To a thriving walk with God. Fools seek to purchase that which is freely given. Fools seek to purchase that which is freely given. Look down in your Bibles in verse 14 of our passage tonight. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now they sent Peter and John as, uh, for the apostles to give uh, a seal of approval for what was going on because it would have been so strange for the Jews to see the gospel spreading into Samaria. Samaria. And so the apostles come down to give approval to say that this is in fact a work of God. Look down at verse 15. It says, So they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Well, what's going on here? Is it true that you become a Christian and then you need to wait and then later on you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, to understand that, what you need to understand about the book of Acts is that the book of Acts is a transitional book, right? There's a lot of firsts happening in the book of Acts. It's the first time that the gospel is preached in Samaria and the first time that the gospel kind of floods throughout Rome. It's the first time that so much is happening in the kingdom of God. And so what's happening is that miracles are taking place to give approval as a sign of God's work in places that no one thought that God was going to work. When Jesus came as Messiah, it was stunning to the Jews. The Jews expected a political leader and what they got was a servant. It was jarring. So miracles happened through the apostles as a sign that it was indeed a work of God. So do you need to, are you saved and then you need to wait to be baptised in the Spirit later? No, not at all. This passage is descriptive. It is not prescriptive, right? How do we know that? Because there is no command anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible that says, after you are saved, you need to wait for the Holy Spirit who will baptise you. It doesn't say that anywhere. It says you can be filled with the Holy Spirit after salvation, but not rebaptized. 
One baptism, many fillings. Everyone say it. One baptism, many fillings. But now the most interesting part. Stephen tries to buy God. Stephen tries to buy God. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Simon is trying to purchase a gift. How strange, right? Imagine being at a birthday party and watching everyone bring in presents for someone who's having the party. And every time they receive a a present, they were handing out $20 notes to the people that were giving the gifts. It'd be strange, right? Now imagine that gift is a person because the Holy Spirit is a person. All throughout Scripture, that is what the choir of Scripture echoes, that the Holy Spirit is a person. And it's even written here in verse 16. It says that they prayed that the, for the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them. So Simon isn't trying to purchase a thing that is a gift. Simon is trying to purchase a person, the person of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift. So now imagine that, uh, men, it is your wedding night and the person of your wife comes before you and is giving you the gift of herself and you are offered to give her money for the gift. How deeply offensive that would be. And now, women, would there be any amount of money that would make that okay? How deeply offensive it would be to purchase the Holy Spirit, to make... Your own name, great. But this is exactly what Simon does. You see, it is foolish to try to purchase that which is freely given because when you do, you demonstrate that you have no understanding of the nature of that gift. No understanding of the nature of that gift. Simon offends Peter by bringing down the Holy Spirit to the level of his magic that built his own platform, that built his own luxuries, that built his own comfort. And the scariest thing of this all is that this is just an illustration of what we can do in our lives all the time, is seek to obtain the Holy Spirit, figuratively purchase the Holy Spirit so we can literally control him, so that we can make our lives more comfortable, we can build our own affluence and build our own name. That's why many year 12s make choices about what's happening next year in 2020 without even asking the question, what would God have for my life next year? That's why many Christians are addicted to social media because God's love through the Holy Spirit and through the church isn't enough for them. They want to hear the world say their name. That's why we have such trouble surrendering to the Holy Spirit and instead to Instead, seek to figuratively purchase him and literally control him. And it is true that when you point one finger out, there are three fingers pointing back. And so um, I want to share with you four subtle and not so subtle ways that I've tried to control the Holy Spirit um, throughout my life. The first way I've tried to control the Holy Spirit is that I acted first and prayed second. I asked God to bless my choices when I excluded him from the decision-making process. 
It's a form of control. I'm not being led by the Holy Spirit. I'm leading the Holy Spirit. Can you relate? The second way I've tried to control the Holy Spirit is that I bargained with God. I told God that if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. Like I could lock God into a contract. Third way that I tried to control God is that I asked I ask God to comfort me while I pursued a sinful lifestyle. It's like asking a mechanic to fix your car while you're continuously driving it into a wall. I wanted the benefits of God without surrendering to the Lordship of God. Does that sound familiar? Fourth way that I tried to control God is that I asked God to save people that I was unwilling to share the gospel with. Does that sound familiar? The Bible says that the church is God's missional strategy. But I was saying, no, that makes me uncomfortable. You do it. God has said that you, that I, that the church is his chosen instrument. Simon's story is not unlike our story. I'm sure you've got your own, just like I do. It's all a story of control, of whether we're willing to acknowledge that God is God and we are not. And get this, to walk in the benefits of the reality of being children of God. Theodore Epp uh, says this, We must desire to be separated unto the Lord from the world and its evil system. We must reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now this is true positionally, but it can be made true of our spiritual life only as we yield control to the Holy Spirit. What's the lesson here? The lesson here is that many of us are saved, perhaps just like Simon, but we're not walking in the benefits of our salvation. Many of us are saved, but we're not walking in the benefits of our salvation. You are saved, but you are not free. You've been rescued by a heavenly father, but you're still living as though you are an orphan. You've been given an eternal life, but you're living as though what we see is all that there is. So what's the solution? What's the solution of seeking to control God? Well, Paul would say it like this in Galatians 5.16. He would say, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the, the desires of the flesh. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It means to daily, to daily wake up and say, today, I hand over control of my life to the Spirit of God. I hand my life over to the Spirit of God, who will speak to me through His Word, who will speak to me through His voice, and who will speak to me through His promises. What happens when we don't walk by the Spirit? Because what's so interesting is that we so often seek fulfillment by choosing not to walk by the Spirit, and instead we walk by the passions of our flesh and we walk into what uh, Paul describes as sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. We think that we'll be better off far from God, and we actually end up in a deeper hole. What I love the most about Paul's teaching here is that the fight against the flesh isn't first won by our ability to overpower sin, it's won through our ability to surrender to the Spirit. It's not about you fighting more, it's about you surrendering more. The paradox of Christianity, as it, because this world tells you to go out and get yours, to fight harder, where the Christian 
narrative, Christian theology, God's word says that you will succeed in this life actually through the means of surrender. And here's what Simon didn't realize and what we often don't realize and what we need to preach to our hearts every day. Though our sinful hearts will always crave fleeting pleasures, what God wants to give you is better. What God wants to give you is better. Amen? And we go out into the world and we crave a name for ourselves. We crave relationships. We crave status. We crave better homes because we think that's going to give us something special. Forgetting that God wants to give us an even greater fulfillment. That he says that if we choose to walk by the Spirit, handing over control to the Spirit, we won't be punished and set aside. We will actually experience a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and not our life spinning out of control but a life of self-control. Is that not what we all want? Is that not what the whole world craves? Isn't that better? Isn't joy and peace better than living for your next instant notification? Isn't his unconditional love better than a love or a lust that leaves you in the morning? Isn't self-control through surrendering to the Spirit better than living a life spinning wildly out of control? I believe it is. So when we close tonight, our application will be that you're going to get an opportunity to surrender to the Spirit, to give up control to the Spirit and to trust Him, to be your portion. So our first warning, pride comes before the fall and our antidote to pride is godly humility. Our second warning, fools seek to purchase that which is freely given and our antidote to controlling God is to walk in the Spirit. And our third warning is this, third warning, all roads do not lead to Rome. All roads do not lead to Rome. Look down in your Bible in verse 20. It says, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Here's the application. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. The pathway to a prevailing faith, a pathway to a thriving faith, a pathway to experiencing the purpose of God and God's purposes in your life are through the means of daily repentance. The phrase, uh, all roads lead to Rome, was coined during the Middle Ages because all roads led to Rome, right? Because, Romans, because the Romans created roads. The starting point was Rome, and they went out from that place creating roads so that they could be involved in um, the exportation of goods and so their armies could travel. So all roads um, literally left from Rome and led back to Rome. The problem now is that this, this phrase, all roads lead to Rome, is basically never true anymore. That now even Europe is across multiple continents, right? So all roads can't lead back to Rome. But this is the way that so many people treat their spirituality. It's not true in life and it's not true spiritually. 
They think that there's, that there's multiple ways to experience God, multiple ways to encounter God, where the Word of God says that His kindness actually leads us to the place that we can experience repentance. Now, repentance isn't something that you just do when the first time you get saved, but it's the daily gift of God that you can turn from the way you've been walking and turn towards God and receive the promise of His forgiveness. Isn't that such an incredible gift? That God would promise that if we turn from sin and towards him, that he doesn't smite us, that he gives us his forgiveness. God has created the means to thrive in your walk. It's not through trying to mimic the behavior of other Christians. It's not through getting good, more, uh, more good works in your account than bad works. It's not through telling yourself that you're not as bad as someone else you know. You begin and you continue to thrive in your walk with God through the means of repentance so that you could turn from sin and experience his promise. So what the Bible says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But the problem is, in Christianity, in the church, so many people are treating God's promises as possibilities. That we think that we've lived this life that God couldn't possibly forgive me for what I've done. That God couldn't forgive me for my indifference. That God couldn't forgive me for my moral behavior. That God couldn't forgive me for my wasted years. But this is the promise of God. It says in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. What more can God do to demonstrate his commitment to his promise and to send his son Jesus so that all of the sun, all the sin that we've committed, which has been poured out on Jesus, has been dealt with? So right now in this moment, maybe you came here by accident and it was just this freak that you're here tonight. You got off at the wrong bus stop, walked into this church and you're just waiting for it to be over. You think it's an accident. But the Bible says that God is uniting all things unto himself, that there is a purpose in you being here tonight. And perhaps for you it's to hear that God has done everything so that you can come to him. That's not about you doing more. It's about you giving up control and receiving the promise of forgiveness. Uh, there's a story that I read of this week uh, as the band can come back up, up on stage of a man named Thomas Martinez from Bolivia. Thomas Martinez. And Thomas Martinez uh, <clears throat> received an inheritance of $6 million, right? How much would your life change if you had $6 million? I think, how many people would quit their... Just don't show your hand. How many people would quit their job if they had $6 million, right? Like, it changes things. Uh, Thomas Martinez... Uh, after his wife left him, he didn't have much, and so he gave his life over to um, alcohol and to crime and to substance abuse. And um, it was actually through uh, his wife who passed away. It was uh, one of uh, her parents left this inheritance to her, and that inheritance got passed on to him. And so this one afternoon, these police came into this, uh, this bar to find Thomas and to let him know that this inheritance was waiting for him. And he feared that he was being going to be brought in and charged with more crime. And so he ran away and they've never found him. And there is this inheritance waiting for him that he continues to run from. Does that not sound like most of our spiritual lives? 
that there is this inheritance waiting for you, this promise of freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from addiction, so that you can walk every single day thriving as you experience God's personhood and God's promises. And yes, dark times, but knowing that God's posture to you doesn't change, that he calls us children of God and so we are. You might feel like there's no hope for you, that you feel like your faith is crippled and broken and fractured and almost shipwrecked. That the hope for you this evening is that an inheritance awaits for you if you'll just accept his free gift of forgiveness. You've been saved, now walk in the benefits of that salvation.